Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. Today is a momentous occasion. We are starting this new series uh, in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I say momentous uh, because uh, right at the very beginning of this church, uh, back in the 1990s, we embarked on a series in Ephesians that went on for the best part of five years. Uh, Hands up if you joined the church in those days or were around when we first went through Ephesians. Well, round of applause for these stalwarts of the church. Um, we are going to go the other extreme, and we're going to do this in 11 weeks, which I, I don't even know how that's possible. And I know there are some cynics in the room who don't think that's going to be possible. But over the next 11 weeks, for the next three months, we're going to be delving into this truly stunning book week after week. We're going to be looking together at what it has to teach us about God's plan for the church. And just to give you a bit of a sneak preview of where we're heading, we're going to be seeing that God's eternal intention for us is to be a growing community, a living community, a reconciled community, a glorious community, a loved community, a united community, a new community, a pure community, a spirit-filled community, a battling community. And what we're going to see today, as we return to these pretty wonderful verses right at the beginning of the letter, is that God intends for us as a church together to be a rejoicing community. One of the prayers we prayed earlier was that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation. And that's my prayer as we open up these verses together right now. Now, all that being said, uh, I genuinely don't know how you're feeling at the moment. I suspect some of us are buzzing right now. I mean, things are going well. We're we're feeling on top of the world. But there are going to be others in the room who, if truth be told, are barely holding it all together. I mean, this last season has been pretty brutal, hasn't it? It was perhaps a real struggle just to get here this morning. Circumstances haven't been great. Perhaps we feel as though we've been mugged by life. And many of us will be somewhere in between. And really, that is the joy and the challenge of being a church. At any given point in time, there are going to be people at both ends of that spectrum and pretty much everywhere in between. Now, wherever you find yourself today, the truth of the matter is you desperately need a source of joy that does not come from your circumstances. Because you and I, we're just going to keep swinging between those two poles throughout our whole lives. You might perhaps have been long-term sick and every day is just physically painful. Maybe you're struggling with your mental health and it feels like you've been engulfed by a dark cloud for longer than you can remember. Perhaps you're worried about upcoming exams. You're kind of feeling slightly underprepared and are fearful of what will happen if you don't quite make the grade. Perhaps you've got money worries You don't know how you're going to be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. Or maybe 
you've just got some good news. You've got the test results back and oh, you've, you, you've been given the all clear. Maybe you've just found out you're expecting another child. Maybe you've had the offer accepted on a house. You've had a good week at work and everyone's kind of been singing your praises. But here's the thing. If you put your hope in anything other than the kinds of things we're going to be looking at this morning, it will not be able to withstand the ups and downs of life. It will be there one day and gone the next. Which means you are going to need something deeper and richer to sustain you if you're going to find permanent joy in life. And so my question is this, is the thing that you are trusting in today going to provide joy when everything comes crashing down tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? And if it isn't, you do need to find something that will. Because if you put all your hope, let's say, in your spouse or in a relationship, that, that's kind of where you get your meaning from. And he or she leaves, or as inevitably they will one day, dies, or you hit a rocky patch, then you're going to crumble. You, you put all your hope in your children, or your financial success, your career, your sporting achievements, and it goes wrong for some reason, you won't be able to carry on living. At the end of the day, you need to put your hope into something that is going to be there like an anchor for the soul, no matter what circumstances are going on around you. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And that's why he penned these words we've just had read to us from the opening chapter of Ephesians 1. In these 14 verses, Paul gives us a staggering eight reasons to rejoice, which is all the more remarkable when you realize that Paul wrote this from a prison cell. And prison, back in Paul's world, was significantly worse than in our world. I mean, it's certainly not pleasant nowadays, but back then you were probably in chains, possibly even in stocks with your legs permanently clamped apart. You're in agony, you can't sleep, you're not fed, you're, you're reliant literally on scraps or donations from other people, you're perhaps abandoned, you're alone. This is a terrible, terrible kind of environment. And Paul, in those circumstances, is still able to say, here are all the reasons why you can rejoice. And you know what? I'm so incredibly glad that he does this because really it stops us thinking that joy is something we feel when things are going well or when we're up and misery is something we feel when we're down. What Paul's highlighting here is that you can be rich, healthy, beautiful and miserable. I mean, just read the Twitter feed of your celebrity of choice. You can have everything going for you and still be miserable. Or you can have nothing going for you. You can be hungry, alone, abandoned, in pain, 
and yet still have every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. You can still have reasons to rejoice that cannot ever be snatched away from you. And so what I want to do in the time that remains is simply walk you through these eight reasons for rejoicing, explaining what they are and why they're true, whether or not your circumstances line up with them, or whether or not it feels like they're true. These declarations are spoken over your life, regardless of how you feel on any given day. I should just add eight points. I've got 20 minutes max. Uh, When in 18 minutes time, we've only done four of them. Don't worry, the remaining four will be done in two or three minutes, just so you can get your bearings. Okay, number one, first of all, the starting place for all of this is verse three, where we see that we are in Christ, or we are united with Jesus. Verse three, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Why? Because we are united with Christ. Really? All the other reasons for rejoicing that Paul is going to go on and list, all of them flow from our being united with Christ. If you are in him, these things are always true doesn't matter if you've done anything to deserve them or not. These things are true of Christ. And so if you are in him, if you are united with him, these things are true of you as well. It's like you get blessed because of who you are in, not because of what you do. And really, that is the whole essence of Christianity. To illustrate this, let me tell you a story about my friend Steve Bradley. Some of you will have heard me mention him before. This is one of my favorite illustrations ever. Steve Bradley, before uh, meeting Helen and marrying her, uh, I shared a house with Steve Bradley. Uh, He was on the worldwide board of directors for Hewlett Packard, uh, so he was quite the big deal. Uh, And one day, he broke the news to me largely because of his job, he could do whatever he wanted under the guise of Hewlett-Packard. He kind of followed all his interests. He liked F1, so he sponsored a Formula One team. Uh, He liked football, so he got executive boxes in different places. Uh, And one day, uh, partly out of friendship with me, I'd like to think, he lined up an executive box at Goodison Park, which for the lesser informed is the home of Everton Football Club, which is the team I happen to support. And Steve Bradley said to me, Jonathan, uh, because of this box, any game you want to go and see, I will get you in for free. Now, do you think I took him up on his offer? (laughs) Absolutely, I did. So, first game was uh, Everton against West Ham. Uh, Went to the ground. I lived in Hampshire back then. He drove me in his top-of-the-range car. We approached the ground. We got to the gates of the ground. The gates swung open, uh, recognizing his number plate. We we parked in a reserved space right in front of the ground. We approached the entrance for the players and directors. Uh, I thought, no, Steve, we're going to the wrong place. They saw Steve Bradley. The uh, guards kind of blocking the entrance moved aside, kind of bowed to him as he went in. And then... (laughs) 
then moved back in place when they saw me because I looked neither like a player, my physique uh, was not great, and I certainly was dressed pretty shabbily and didn't look like one of the directors of the club. All I had to do, though, was say, I'm with Steve Bradley, and they moved aside, gave a little bow, and welcomed me in. And really, that's how it played out for the rest of the day. Everywhere we went, said, no access. Uh, all I had to do was say, I'm with Steve Bradley, and, and the doors would magically open, or the guards would move to one side. I went into the changing rooms. Uh, in fact, I, I touched the boots of Kevin Campbell, and he scored a hat-trick in that game. I mean... <laughs> Go figure. Now, uh, I, I went to the changing rooms. I went onto the pitch. All these signs saying, do not go onto the grass. All I had to do, I'm with Steve Bradley. I, I went on the grass. I, I sat in the dugout, uh, had a meal beforehand in the players' restaurant. Half time, I went to go and get a drink. Went to get my money out to pay for it. And they said, no, you were Steve Bradley. You don't have to pay a thing. Everything was free. I, I got to go to the man of the match presentation at the end. And all because I was with Steve Bradley. It's like his status gave me all kinds of privileges that I could never ever have earned. And it's the same, only infinitely more so, if we are in Christ. Because we have a friend in high places, everything that is true of him becomes true of me. And I didn't deserve any of it. And so, all that we're about to see is true because of our identification with someone else and not because of anything we've done. We are in Christ. We're united with him. Secondly, we're chosen. Verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. If you're in Christ, it is not primarily as a result of a decision that you made or because you had Christian parents or as a result of living in a nation where Christianity was known. Those things may have been the means by which you came to know him, but the reason or the basis for you being in Christ is because God chose you, not just before there was a you, but before there was a world. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. And that is the source of tremendous encouragement and reassurance. On those occasions when you start doubting your ability to make good decisions or your ability to keep persevering in holiness. You need to know that God's choice of you in Christ is the reason you believe. Now, that being said, I think what Paul meant as an encouragement can very often turn into a bit of a problem for us. Like, does this mean that human choices count for nothing uh, and what about people who haven't been chosen? Look, let's be honest. You have to be comfortable with mystery to get your head around Christianity a lot of the time. You see, the Bible, in this case, teaches two truths 
But although I don't understand how they could possibly fit together, the Bible tells me to believe them both. That God's choice is the difference over my life that meant I came to Christ and that human choices matter and I have full responsibility for my decisions. The Bible seems to teach both of those things. And if I look at either one of them, it makes sense. But when I try to fit them together, it seems like a contradiction. You know, ultimately, I think a large bit of the problem stems from us seeing things from our limited earthly perspective and not from God's multi-dimensional perspective. Let me give you an illustration. I like to imagine you can only see in two-dimensional ways. You, you can't see the whole picture. You can't see three-dimensionally. So, Chris, if I thrust this jar in front of you, you can only... No, stop peering behind it. You, you can only see in two dimensions. All you're presented with is that. What shape, not using other knowledge you might have seen as I <laughs> got it here, or not trying to be clever, what shape would you say that is? Definitively circular. Now, I'm going to go to an engineer, um, Tom. It, again, two-dimensionally, not having heard Chris, but only seeing what's presented in front of you, what shape, and not looking through the glass to what's behind it, what shape would you say that is? You're going to go square. So we have the engineer who says square, um, and we have the insurance broker who says circular. Now, which one is your money on? Viewed in a two-dimensional way, it's hard to understand how that circular and that square can both be true at the same time, how it can be a circle and a square at the same time. And really, in a sense, that's how it is with Christianity. When I look at it this way, I can say God chose you before the beginning of the world. In fact, funny enough, just now it says specially selected, which feels very, very, it's almost as though I'd line that up. I hadn't seen that before. Um, God chose you. It's a sign. God chose you from before the beginning of time. You are specially selected. And if I look at it from over here, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And it's the best decision I ever made. And both are true even though it's hard to fit them both together. I've heard it put like this. It's like you walk through a door, and above the door it says, open to all comers. And you go through the doorway, and you look back, and above the door it now says, chosen from before the beginning of time. Now, that's not perfect, but that's the closest I can get to explaining this to you. But ultimately, for all of our questions and all our issues, Paul doesn't see this as a theological muddle. He sees it as a reason for comfort and joy. You are chosen to be holy and blameless. And if you're worried about your ability to be holy and blameless, well, take heart. God has chosen you with that destiny in mind. Thirdly, we're adopted Verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. 
And so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. If you're here today and you are struggling to work out your purpose or your calling or your destiny in life, listen up. Here it is. It is simply to live as a child of God bringing glory to him. That's what you're called to do. Now, the eight things we're going to take in this morning, really, this is by far the most personal and the most intimate one. We're not just brought into God's good books. No, we are brought into his very family. You know, I love the doctrine of justification, that we are declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. Uh, the setting for that is the law court. God's like the judge, you're like the defendant, and at the end, you're given freedom. I love that. But in adoption, the setting is no longer a law court, but a family. God's a father, and you're like an orphan in need of a home. And God doesn't just declare you righteous, he declares you loved. And he doesn't just set you free, he invites you into his home. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. We are brought into the very family of God. Fourthly, we're purchased or we're redeemed. Verse 7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now really, to get at the richness of what it is to be purchased or redeemed by God, I think it's helpful to think of the ways that we tend to use this phrase today. For example, one way is we talk of someone redeeming themselves, don't we? Let's say a football player gives away a needless penalty and it looks like the team's going to lose as a result, but he pops up and scores a last-minute equaliser. There's an error that has been compensated for. Well, in a sense, that's what Jesus has done for me. I've made any number of catastrophic failures but Jesus has done something once and for all that compensated for all of my failures. Another example, we talk of redeeming a voucher, don't we? Now, this will come as no surprise to those who know me well. I can't remember the last time I paid full price for a meal. When it comes to paying, right, they sidle up to you and ask how you want to pay, card or cash, and I whip out a voucher. Now, when I redeem a voucher, I'm effectively saying, I'd like to give this in exchange for having to pay for it myself. And again, that's what Jesus does for me. He offers himself to redeem me. And in doing so, he liberates me from having to pay for it myself. He offers himself in exchange for me. Same thing happens with a mortgage. I don't know, perhaps you come into some money and you're able to make a mortgage redemption payment. 
You, you decide to pay it all off in one go and be free of this bank who have held you in slavery to debt all these years. And in that moment, you don't have to pay them anything else ever again. Your debt has been redeemed. Again, that's what Jesus does for me. He says that I'm under the slavery of a hostile power called the devil, and he liberates me. And in one lump sum, he scrubs the debt away forever. Back in the ancient world, you also got this in the slave markets. You would redeem a slave and buy them out so they're no longer under the tyranny of their harsh master. And once again, that is what Jesus has done for me. He's bought me with his own blood, and now I belong to him. I've been bought out of the mess I was in, and now I live under the tyranny, not of harshness, but of infinite kindness. Okay, four down, four to go in four minutes. There's a precedent earlier on. Okay, fifthly, we've been given wisdom and insight. Verse eight, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now, this is an absolute game changer. If we're in Christ, he has let us in on the secret of what he's doing and where all of world history is heading, which really matters. You see, all the time, we're making decisions day by day based on where we think things are going. Now, if you think there is no purpose in life, you'll end up living a particular way. It'll be hard to believe in justice or hope or, or even love. Similarly, if you think the world is heading towards global meltdown or utopia, it will affect how you live now. But if you think that all of history is heading towards the kingdom of God coming on earth and all things in heaven and on earth being united under the glorious rule and reign of King Jesus then surely that gives a meaning and hope that far outweighs all these other narratives for life. And that is what God has given you. God has let you into the family secret in Christ, making known to us the purpose of everything. Sixthly, we're heirs. Verse 11, furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we've received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Now, the thing about an inheritance is the richer your dad, the bigger the inheritance. And so, when your father has all things, and he says that we are his heirs, then we get the whole shebang. We get the whole lot. That's how it is. Seventhly, we're given the Holy Spirit. 
And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment of all that's to come. We belong to God, and what he started, he will certainly finish. He will keep us safe to the very end. He proves that I'm owned by God. Jonathan Bell is mine. Why? Because I have the Spirit of God inside me. He's put a seal over my life to prevent me from ever being taken away, either by the devil or by my own foolish stupidity. And he's a deposit or a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. It's like if we've been given the Holy Spirit, we can be certain that God means business. He is never going to let us go. And there's even more to come. And then eighthly and finally, we are for the praise of his glory. He did this, all of this, so we would praise and glorify him. That is where all of this is heading. God is very glorious and deserves all praise from all people for all eternity. And so he gives us all these blessings to draw us into praising him, which is ultimately what we were made for. Bottom line is, if you are in Christ, I think it's fair to say you have reason to rejoice. Now, we've only looked at the first 14 verses of this stunning letter. There is a whole lot more to come, but we've already got eight magnificent reasons to rejoice. We are in Christ, chosen, adopted, redeemed, let in on the big secret. We're heirs, sealed with the Spirit. We're therefore able to live for his praise and glory. Whether or not you're having a great day, regardless of how you feel, these things are unshakably true. And if we believe this, we will most certainly be a rejoicing community.